the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, the show's in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, you know... It's, it's tough doing business today, but we still are operating on a limited basis at Connors and & Sullivan, and you can schedule an appointment to discuss things over the phone, and if we need to sign documents, we can sign those documents by executive order right now. The governor, we can sign those documents through Zoom or Skype, one of those computer programs. And once you get into it, it's a lot easier than it may seem. So don't think, you know, maybe I'll wait. You know, if you if you want to start doing your planning, you're more than welcome to do your planning with us right now. Now, we're going to take a, a couple of email questions to start. And then after that, we're going to be talking to one of my favorite guests on Ask the Lawyer, Tim Wilson with the London Center. So, Beth, what's our first question on cue? All right. This is from William. My spouse and I have all joint accounts. Why do we need a power of attorney? This is one question we get all the time, and just because you have a joint account does not necessarily mean you don't need a power of attorney. But let's, let's say for the sake of argument, if you have a joint account between husband and wife, obviously you don't need the power of attorney to access the account between those two. But what if one of them passes away? One of them's in an accident, one of them passes away, and the other one is in the hospital because of that accident. Again, you may want to put a third person down in order to pay bills and protect those assets in case something happens to both of you. But that's not the only reason. You know, all the accounts are joined. Okay, fine. Do you have a retirement plan? Do you have an IRA? IRA, retirement plans, 401K, they're not joint. So let's say for the sake of argument, husband has a stroke. Wife wants to access the IRA or the 401K to pay some bills, to make some new investments, whatever. She, her name is not on an IRA or 401k. There's no such thing as a joint 401k, joint IRA. So in that event, uh, you need a power of attorney for the wife to access the account, to make changes to the account, to change the investments. That's another example. And, of course, here's one of the main reasons, if you have a power of attorney, why you need a power of attorney. If you own real estate, 
Now, let's say a deed to the house is husband and wife, married couple. All right, if one of them passes away, there's no problem. The house automatically passes to the other one. However, husband again has a stroke. Wife wants to sell the house. There's no automatic right in New York State for a spouse to sign the other spouse's name. So if one spouse is incompetent, the other spouse, let's say, wants to sell the house, let's say the spouse in the community has to get a court order to sell his or her own house. It, it sounds absurd, but that's the way it is. There is no automatic right between husband and wife to sign each other's name. So let's say husband's in a car accident. He's in a coma, whatever. Wife wants to sell the house. She can't sell the house. Wife might maybe want to get a mortgage on the house to help pay for some bills, get a reverse mortgage. She can't do that without her husband's signature unless he has a power of attorney. Now, again, we're assuming the husband's incompetent, but that's what we use a power of attorney for 90% of the time when somebody's incompetent. And, you know, sometimes even let's say you got a husband and wife, you have joint bank accounts, fine and good. One of them has a stroke, has to go to a nursing home. We want to apply for nursing home Medicaid. A lot of times you can't make the application if you can't sign the, the applicant's name in certain cases, and you need that power of attorney. And also, if you get audited, sometimes if we transfer assets from husband and wife, which we're allowed to do on Medicaid right now, you know, the power of attorney ordinarily allows to make gifts. So if we get audited by somebody, we're allowed to make those gifts. We legitimately can make gifts and transfers between husband and wife, between each other. And, and, you know, we could come up with a, a hundred other different reasons why we may need a power of attorney. Husband, again, has a stroke. He owns a car. Wife wants to sell the car, Deal doesn't want to deal with the car payments, wants to transfer, turn the car in. Again, she can't do that without her husband's signature. So, And a lot of people confuse it. You know, like if somebody passes away, a lot of times there's not a problem. The biggest problem is, again, usually if somebody has a stroke and they're not mentally competent, that's where the problem comes into place. And, you know, some people say, well, why do you always say stroke? Well, you know, God forbid you're starting to show the beginning signs of Alzheimer's. There's usually enough warning signals, you know, to, to get the proper document signed. So, somebody's diagnosed with cancer. In today's world, there's usually more than enough time to get your affairs in order. The stroke hits like the sudden bolt of lightning, throws the family into disarray. Chaos happens, and in a lot of cases when that happens, the spouse who's on the outside has got a problem, and the problems are much alleviated if we have a properly drafted power of attorney. And when I say a properly drafted power of attorney, I'm not talking about the standard form you might get off the Internet. Those are good forms. They allow you to pay your bills. They're, they allow you to do certain things. But they don't allow you to set up a pooled income trust to apply for home care Medicaid. They don't allow you to make major gifts or transfers, which we have to. Let's say you got a million-dollar house. Husband has a stroke. We want to switch that house over to the wife's name for different reasons. We can't do that without a power of attorney, and especially drafted power of attorney. The standard form doesn't quite cut it. So estate planning, in, in one respect, it's not hard. In another respect, there, there are a lot of little things, if you're not familiar with the process, where you could make mistakes. Every couple that trusts each other, and again, don't do a power of attorney to somebody you can't trust. I mean, that's the other side of the coin. Yeah, I, I seem to be selling powers of attorney here. But at the same time, if you give a power of attorney that you can't trust to somebody that you can't trust, they can wipe you out. They can steal you blind. So you have to be careful with a power of attorney. But if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse. You want to be protected in case your spouse has an injury or a stroke or whatever, then I strongly recommend you think about doing a power of attorney. And if you have a, a son or daughter you implicitly trust or a nephew or niece who's like a son or daughter that you implicitly trust, then think about putting them on it. Because you got to ask yourself this question. If you don't have a power of attorney, what happens? You have to go to court 
and the court appoints somebody. And ordinarily, you want to appoint the person. You know everybody better than the court does. You want to appoint the people. You want to appoint to help manage your assets. God forbid you have a stroke or that other disabling illness, and you want to have attorney. All right, so, you know, that's the first question up. What's the next one, Beth? Um, this question is from Anonymous. I did a will I downloaded off the Internet. Is it any good? Well, a lot depends. <laughs> Was the will properly signed? You know, and, and this is one of the problems. You know, sometimes those kits, people think, well, a will is like a form. You fill out a form, you get any two people to witness it, they fill in the blanks right, and it's a good will. Not necessarily so. And one of the biggest questions is, is somebody out there who's going to contest your will? A will can be contested by anybody who's your next of kin by law. So in other words, if you have a will and you're not leaving it to those people that are your next of kin by law, and it may not be the same people you think. Let's say you got two brothers. You're very close to them. You want to leave everything to those two brothers, but you got a half-sister you barely know. Well, that half-sister, and the law treats a, a half-brother or sister the same as a full-brother or sister. That half-brother or sister can contest your will, hold it up in court, bring the witnesses into court, and if the witnesses don't say the right things, that will may not go through probate. And I've been in that situation where you get two amateur witnesses and, you know, they don't want to get involved. And, and sometimes they think if they say, well, I don't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember. And they say that's everything. Well, nobody's going to bother me anymore. But that's exactly what could cause you to go into court because the attorney who represents the person objecting to the will, hey, there's something funny here. Uh, you know, it might press them on, keep them going. So you don't want amateur witnesses on a will. You want somebody who's been there before. And, you know, Connors and Sullivan, we try to have a will witnessed if it's going to be contestable by, a, you know, an attorney or a senior paralegal or some other professional. You know, you don't want to rely on amateur witnesses if you're going to do what, a will. Well, what do you mean by an amateur witness? Because people might think, well, what my neighbor with my a friend, a good friend of mine. Well, a lot of times you get a good friend to witness the will and you have to go to court and testify and they say the wrong thing and they haven't witnessed a will before, they don't know the routine. And wills technically, you know, there are a lot of technicalities to sign a will. It's not like a form you fill out right. Now, the courts are very liberal in allowing the technicalities to be bypassed. But still, at the same time, if you have a good lawyer on the other side objecting to the, the signing of the will, they can drag things out forever and get a settlement. And that's what the court will try to do is get a settlement. Now, if if you have a will and you're leaving, you're single and you're leaving everything to your parents, oh, that will's probably good. If your parents are gone, you're leaving everything to your your brothers and sisters. That will's probably good. If you you have children, you're not married, leave everything to the children in equal shares. The will's probably good. But why 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 make a mistake? And sometimes even forgetting to notarize in the wrong place could cause years of delay. Now we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife Beth. Hi, buddy again. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one 
one strategy that fits everyone. But the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors and Sullivan, attorneys at law, today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of our emailed questions, and he asked a question on his show, which you can hear, Kevin, here on 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. He has an extended hour on Wednesdays at 4 o'clock, and on 970 The Answer, on 570 The Mission, he's on Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock. So, Kevin, take it away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every single week, we promise you that Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan will be here to answer one of your questions, one of your real questions uh, for the the regional and I would say even uh, maybe in all the country, one of the best minds when it comes to estate care and elder law. Uh, Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, uh, the question this week comes from Daniel. He says, Mr. Connors, can you explain the difference between estate administration and probate? I've also heard of voluntary administration. What does all of this mean? Sign Daniel. Okay, well, basically, these terms come into play when if you pass away, there are assets in your name alone. If you have a will, the assets pass through probate. If you don't have a will, then the assets pass through estate administration, and the state writes the will for you. Voluntary administration is when the estate is worth less than $50,000 in New York, it's a simplified procedure. It's still it's still going to court. There's still red tape. But basically, those three items, probate, estate administration, voluntary administration, is when someone dies, assets in their name alone. And All right. And to court. All right. Well, friends, if you've got uh, additional questions like this or maybe specifics uh, to your situation that you'd like some clarity on, Mike's entire team is standing by ready to help you today. 718-238-6500 is the number. 718-238-6500. You can also send an email to askmikeconnors at gmail.com, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And uh, he will answer a question every week here on Kevin McCullough Radio. He'll also answer questions on his show on uh, uh, AM 570 and FM 102.3 WMCA, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com.
Thanks again, Kevin. Now, Beth, how does somebody, you know, how does somebody email us? How do you get your, your question heard on the radio? All right, everybody ready? We have an email, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And everybody out there, Connors is spelled with an O, C-O-N-N-O-R-S. So askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's our email address. But we also have some things that we want you to look at. We have a Facebook page, and we have a website, and we're on YouTube. So the Facebook page is Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors, and the website is Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. But our YouTube is something a little bit different. It's called Connors Corner with Mike Connors. I'm trying to figure out how to play around with YouTube and put all of the interviews on there. Right now, we have what might be considered our best from each year. But we want to get everything on there because we have so many wonderful people that have been interviewed. Okay, so now if you want to get in touch with us, email askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And you can always call the office, um, Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500. All right. All right, Beth, do we have another email question answer this week? This is from Ann. Hello, I have never had a will done before. Do all of my accounts and assets need to be mentioned? And if they're not mentioned in the will, how will my executor know what my assets are once I'm gone? Well, the first part of the question is pretty easy. You know, basically, you know, in your will, you can make it fairly simple if you want to. I mean, some people want to specifically give a lot of different assets away, but most of the time, if you say, I, all the assets that are in my name alone when I pass away, I leave to my two children in two equal shares. Or let's say you have 10 nephews and nieces. All the assets that are in my name alone, I give to my 10 nephews and nieces in equal shares. And then you have a couple of what-ifs. If something happens to one of the nieces and nephews, where do their shares go? You know, ordinarily, they would go to their respective children. If they have children, if they don't have children, it usually goes back, let's say, to the other nephews and nieces or children. You know, in some cases, you do leave spouses of a, of a child as beneficiary. Ninety percent of the people do not leave a spouse as beneficiary. If they have a child, they don't leave their spouse as a beneficiary. Because what happens, and especially in today's world, you have a son, he passes away, you leave it to his wife. His wife gets remarried, and then she doesn't even plan things out, and then she leaves it to her second husband. And somebody you don't even know today could end up with part of your estate. So ordinarily, you don't leave part of your estate to an in-law. There are exceptions to every rule. You know, sometimes people come into my office and they say, listen, my daughter-in-law is better to me than my daughter. I do want to leave my daughter-in-law something. Um, but that's 90% of the people, if not 95% of the people, keep it within the blood family line. But a will doesn't have to be obligated. You don't have to list all your accounts. Just say whatever accounts, whatever's in my name goes to my children in two equal shares. Or, however, if you want to be more specific, certainly you can be more specific. And then you choose an executor. The executor, 90, 95% of the time, is a family member you choose to wrap up your legal, financial, you know, business matters after you're gone. Now, how does your executor know where your assets are? Well, that's not as easy to answer because hopefully if you do a will, your assets are going to change dramatically over the years. I mean, so in that case, one of the things, keep in a place where your executor can find it a copy of your tax return. 
a good part of the information that your executive is going to need is on the tax return. It lists your accounts, where you get interest, where you get dividends, the names of the banks where you hold your assets. The tax return does that. Now, does it hurt to have a list that's updated every once in a while telling you what the assets are? And of course, one of, some of the assets that, you know, it's a little bit hard to duplicate in the mail. Let's say you have U.S. savings bonds that are in the attic. Well, you may have to put a note somewhere. I have U.S. savings bonds in the safe deposit box or things like that. So that you may want to write out for your executor because U.S. savings bonds, if you don't cash them in, are not going to show up on your tax return. Now, if you do cash them in, it will show up on your tax return. But again, if you have bonds that have been in the attic for 30, 40 years, uh, which you might want to take a look at them and see if they're still collecting interest and see whether you want to cash them in. That's another story you know, altogether. Most of the assets will be on the tax return. That's number one. Two, you should have a list that makes it easy for your executor. And of course, on your list, you should have the names and addresses of your next of kin, as long as the names and addresses of the people that are named in your will. Of course, that might be the same people. But those are the different types of things that you do need to administer your estate. And here's one other thing, too. You know, like your executive doesn't know, let's say, your date of birth or your place of birth, your education, your Social Security number. Of course, that might be on your tax return. But they should have a list of those different documents because the funeral director does need that to fill out the, the death certificate in today's world. And... Where do you keep it? I don't know. Try to keep it in a place. You can always make photocopies of it. it. It depends who your executor is. If your executor is your son or daughter, you trust them, well, maybe you just give them the information and update it every couple of years. If it's a nephew or niece and you'd rather them not know everything, we'll try to put it in a place where they're going to look after you're gone. And by the way, you know, obviously we, we spend a lot of time about doing trust and avoiding probate. And right now, you know, there's one more reason to avoid probate. If let's say you own a house that's in your name alone when you pass away, when you pass away, in order for your heirs to sell that house, ordinarily they have to go to court. And the problem right now, if somebody died a few months ago, the courts have been closed. So let's say your uncle passed away. He has a house. Somebody's making you a nice offer. You want to sell the house. You want to get rid of it. It's vacant. There's maybe a mortgage on it that you're paying the mortgage. And you can't get a court order to sell that house right now because the courts are closed. So that's another reason to avoid probate. We want your assets in a trust after you're gone so that when you pass away, the people named as beneficiaries on your trust can sell your house within a few days if you're gone with a death certificate. And, of course, the information I just mentioned helps you fill out the form for the death certificate. Again, if you want to talk any of this stuff over, come in at Connors & Sullivan. You're more than welcome to schedule an appointment. Our phone number is 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to hear from one of our most interesting guests that we have on the show fairly regularly is Tim Wilson. Tim Wilson spent 30 years in, in British military intelligence. He's been all over the world, including Northern Ireland, where he dealt with terrorists there. He was in Germany and Europe. He was in Finland on the Russian border. And he has a wealth of knowledge to share with us. So again, we'll take a short break. Don't be talking to Tim Wilson. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's Top Rated Lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. 
Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer every Saturday morning at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, WMCA. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest is Tim Wilson from the Lunner Center, and, and he's been on the show a few times. He told us how we can try to avoid being annihilated in a nuclear blast, and we, we talked about gun control. And now he, he's back again, and, and what's your background? Let the audience know what your background is. Um, I first came to America as a child, so I learned the Pledge of Allegiance before I learned God save the Queen. But I then went back to England, went through school there, and joined the British Army. And spent over 30 years serving in the British Army before coming back to America because I'd fallen in love with an American. And um, that led to me becoming an American citizen. Um, but it, during my service, I saw quite a, uh, a, a fair amount of action in Northern Ireland. And with what's going on currently, um, with the riots and what have you, that's been fascinating to watch and look at the pictures and see what I can pick up. Now, what was it like when you were in Northern Ireland? What years was that, roughly? Uh, I first started there in the late 70s, and um, I was my last tour there was in 1991. So I saw it pretty much through from the British Army being called in to the end. And it was interesting to watch the way that we evolved our tactics and strategies for dealing with them. At the end of the day, the big thing that I think really helped was, first of all, um, we realized that it was a very small group of violent people. And the second big pointer was that actually they were nearly all involved in, or they were all involved in, organized crime, extortion, rackets of all sorts, as well as the gun smuggling and bomb making. Talking about the IRA back then. Yeah, the provisional IRA were the, the ones who really got things going. I mean, a quick bit of history there. The, the British military was actually called in at the request of the Catholic population who were being um, badly abused by the by the Protestants. It was never as simple, though, as, as all that, and Irish independence is not a simple topic either. It's a complicated place, as all these things are, but in simplistic terms, it was the Catholics that called us in, but it was then very quickly they switched around to be become uh, supporters of the provisional IRA, and uh, they violently objected to the British Army presence and indeed the whole British presence in Northern Ireland. The protesters today, do you see any similarities? I certainly see similarities in the way they act and react in and around um, protests. I mean, you know, when when people are wrongly killed, it's a natural instinct to object. And one of the ways you can express your objections is to gather for a protest. But you can then see the organizers who are trying hard to promote, provoke violence and ideally in their eyes, death. And the way that they go about that is... Um, pretty organized and 
what can I say? If you read the Antifa handbook or the anarchist handbook or even rules for radicals, you will see that there are ideas, suggestions and organizational methods to use to achieve the maximum result from their point of view. What do you know about Antifa? Um, well, I know that um, they started the origins of the movement were actually in um, Italy and Germany and Spain back in the 20s and 30s, in the 1920s and 1930s, where obviously they were opposed to Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco. Uh, they evolved through the years and then devolved and kind of moved. Um, they went into a hiatus for quite a long time, and they came back in the 70s in America as this anti-fascist organization. My personal view on that is that what one thing that, um, comes out of, if you like, the communist handbook, is to use projection wherever possible for propaganda purposes. And these anti-fascists, to me, seem much more, much closer to fascists than they would have us believe. Sometimes that's you know where your enemies are, far your enemy to some extent. Exactly. What is the Antifa handbook? What does it say? Well, it's a handbook that they push out that talks about methods of organizing in such a way as not to be caught and how to provoke and stir up a crowd, what to do in a mob, how to, how to, how to organize a protest, and then how to maximize any publicity you might get out of that protest by turning to violence me violent means. For example, it covers all the preparations of if you go to a pro protest, make sure you're wearing full head cover like a hoodie, wear wearing a mask, carry a backpack that will have in it water for washing out the eyes, milk for uh, reducing the effects of riot gas, ways to, as I say, encourage the crowd. And it also talks about tactics like if you spot the Antifa guys in a crowd, you will see they are never in the front line. There was, and they cooperate with other movements to and stir them up, knowingly or unknowingly, to get them to occupy the front line while they will stand at the back. And they'll be the ones that will throw a brick, for example, to try and get the police to charge so that they can then get pictures of um, the police knocking down innocent bystanders. Although I have to ask... If you're innocent, what are you doing in the front line screaming and shouting at the police? Huh. I, that's true. Do you have any – listen, I, I don't understand, you know, the reaction. I don't think, you know, thoughts have been really organized yet. But what what's the idea about looting stores in downtown Manhattan? And we, we had a march here in Bay Ridge the other it, – it seemed to be peaceful, at least from what I've heard. But, yes, the tone was very strident. Right. And that's because, in, in part, these people have been stoked up beforehand by people who are good at oratory. One thing about words is that they, people say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, words can actually hurt other people quite easily because you get people very emotional. They naturally get very loud. They get angry. They get upset. And then they, they feel they have to express that, and they tend to express it by shouting very, very loudly. And it's only one short step from that to trying to get physical, and it usually starts with a few shoves here and there. And then it progresses upwards, and sometimes very, very quickly. And these Antifa guys know that. They are, work, they are you know, trained, and uh, they get together in small cells where they say that they don't know each other, and 
that's believable in its way. They're organized on the small cell system, which makes it very, very hard to find out who the organizers really are. But if you look at what's gone on across the nation, I would just point out to everybody, do, do we actually believe that there are Antifa cells in almost every major city who just happened to uh, get together with genuine protesters, turned up and spontaneously ignited you know, this many cities in one go? It just doesn't have any ring of truth to it. It's straightforward. This was organized and planned. And it's, by the way, it's not cheap. It's being funded by people that actually, you know, are spending quite a lot of money on it. There are substantiated rumors, shall we say, of people being bussed between cities, between states. There are cases that have been cited where bricks and the like have been randomly just dropped near where there happens then to be violence. You know, these bricks are not going to construction sites. Um, they're being dropped as ammunition for, for rioters. And if you look at the very start of the whole thing that went on in Minneapolis, that very there's a video of a, a protester, protester is the wrong term for him, an agitator, an organizer, smashing the windows of the, uh, of the auto zone. And he then makes his escape. And I was going to say before, one of the things that comes out of the Antifa handbook is always make sure your line of escape is, is clear so you can do your business and walk calmly away, which then doesn't attract the eye of guys who are in the front line, the police who are in the front line. Um, they're looking for people running away. It's all just so disgusting in that it is so organized and you can see it happening if you know what to look for. Are the intelligence officers in the various police departments, are they prepared for this? Are they looking for this? Uh, they're looking for it, I'm sure, yes. There is there is a fair amount of experience of what, who to do, what, where, and when. You know, much of what goes on is analysis of the videos after the event. But there is now online one instance of somebody grabbing one of the Antifa organizers and hustling him into the police lines um, where he was arrested and will duly be processed. Now I'm going to change the subject. You and I have talked about the Second Amendment before in the show. Gun sales right now are going up. People are scared. Why why are they scared? Well, there's a a number of factors at work there, but the obvious one is that under the coronavirus emergency, amongst other things, we saw criminals being police being released and police being overworked with having to escort uh, first responders here and there. And the lockdown left a number of businesses shuttered, which made um, an easy target for burglars, for example. So people got worried about defending themselves and their property. And one thing that is very interesting and relevant to this is that the Supreme Court has ruled several times that the police are not responsible for your individual safety. Um, you know, And it is a case of one of those sad truisms that comes up of when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. They're good guys, most of them. They do their they do their best, but they can't be everywhere, and um, that means that people are thrown onto their own resources. And one of those resources, which is in, covered in the Constitution in the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights, is the right to keep and bear arms. And if you're going to protect yourself, the, a gun is a very good weapon for that. In terms of, you don't need strength to operate one. 
So it puts you on a par with people who are stronger than you, younger than you, fitter than you, faster than you. So the record numbers have been coming up. And, uh, and in, interestingly, many of those record numbers, uh, going by background check information from the FBI, have been first-time buyers, which is um, an interesting statistic. Over a million new first-time buyers in March and April alone, probably. Now, let me ask you something. When a lot of times when you talk to people about the Second Amendment, it kind of gets into like, well, nobody wants to take away your hunting rifle. But that wasn't the intent of the amendment, just to let hunters do whatever they want. No, it wasn't. And it's very, very interesting that the anti-gun lobby is so focused on guns. Um, And yet plenty of historic aircraft are privately owned. Some of those historic aircraft, for example, are are third-generation fighter aircraft. And yet private individuals are are not only allowed but encouraged. So it raises the question of where the limits should be. There are plenty of people with cannons and tank collections, private tank collections. And there have been no problems with those. People do not use aircraft to um, carry out mass attacks. People do not use... I'm talking private fighter aircraft, for example. People do not use um, tanks to run down, run over people in the main street in in towns and cities around the country. Yet they exist. They're around. It tends to be a case of the private owner is, in general, a very responsible person with weapons. And that leads to the element of that's one of the, the things I really stand by with the Second Amendment. But we, the government is required to trust the citizen. It says so in the Constitution. And yet we are not required to trust them. I mean, the Founding Fathers talked about this. Uh, James Madison in Federalist Paper 46 mentioned that the advantage of being armed, which Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation. It, it, uh, to me, you know, Responsibly armed citizens are a very good thing. Um, Robert Heinlein, back in the the 30s, wrote an excellent book, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, in which he set up a scenario. And one of his key lines in that was that an armed society is a polite society. I always thought that was a great line. Now, you know, but but some people still, well, you can't, you shouldn't have an AR-15. There's no reason to have an AR-15. What would you answer? And what is an AR-15? Maybe you can answer that for the audience. Okay. An AR-15 is a civilianized version of an armor-like rifle, a semi-automatic, not an automatic weapon. It is not an assault rifle. An assault rifle, the name came from Sturmgewehr in World War II when Hitler put it out as a propaganda piece. It was a fully automatic capable, that is to say, one pull of the trigger, many bullets, uh, assault weapon, and that is heavily legislated in this country where you can own one, but you have to have a special license from the ATF, and it's an expensive and intrusive uh, series of checks to go through to get one. The AR-15 style, of which there are many, is, of course, um, developed on, you know, developed from the AR-15 that was the Armalite rifle that was in common issue during the Vietnam era to the army. So many, you know, millions of people in their armed service became familiar with it. 
And the semi-automatic version is now very, very popular with lots of people for hunting and target shooting and self-protection because people are familiar with it. It's, and it's relatively low cost for what it is. And But yet that seems to be the target of the anti-gun activists. It, it very much does. And that's because, amongst other things, handguns are already heavily regulated, um, as we're well aware, in a lot of places. Um, long rifles, however, tend not to be. And unfortunately, um, it is the mass killer um, that, seems to go for the use of AR-15-style weapons. Now, AR-15-style also includes Kalashnikovs, AK-47s, AK-74s, AK-84s, and the like. They're all covered by the same thing, and the, the politicians are trying to legislate against ownership of this type of weapon because it's scary. It looks like the military gun, therefore, it's, it's, and it has many of the same cosmetic features I will say on that that there are two items to that, one of which is that a good sniper, even in this day and age, will often use a bolt-action rifle, and that, to me, is even scarier. Um, the, the other part of this is that the legislation they're enacting will not achieve anything. It will not reduce the number of weapons around. The only thing it will do is criminalize a lot of good, law-abiding citizens. It's not going to cut back on the numbers available. And estimates, by the way, say that there are somewhere between 40 and 50 million AR-15-style weapons already in private possession. So if they make them illegal, it raises the question of what's going to happen to those that are already in public possession? Are they going to be bought back, in which case it's going to cost many billions of dollars, and how many people are going to surrender them? It will drive an awful lot of weapons into the... Uh, underground black networks, and it will not, therefore, re effectively reduce the number of mass shootings that there are, which is, by the way, um, very much lower than is commonly thought in this country. Real estimates, there was a, a, a gun control type study put out in the early teens of this, of this century, which tried to claim that we had the biggest problem when almost one-third of the world mass shootings were in America. That just isn't true. Um, the, the researcher who wrote that wouldn't release his data for years, but when he eventually did, it was trashed by everybody that looked at it. And in the end, the real statistic is that we, with slightly more than 1% of the world's population, have less than 1% of the world's mass shootings. We are in the middle to the low end, as we are with um, deaths by gun. Something, that statistic you just said, I don't think anybody knows that. Which one? <laughs> Both, but uh, that we're right in the middle, because everybody thinks of, you know, well, America's a violent society. We have violent police officers. We, uh, you know, we shoot each other all the time. Well, let me put it like this. At the end of the day, there there's a very good website and articles that I've linked to on my website at thelondoncentre.org. There's a website called crimeresearch.org that covers all these details with open data. So if you want to challenge it, you can look at the data yourself and come up with it. But so far, everything there is peer-reviewed. 
and make sense. And out of 192 countries, for example, if you look at the data, okay, it's it's old, but 2008, um, the United States of America sat below the mean of all countries for homicide by gun. We are not a murderous country. Over 50% of the counties in this country will not experience a single murder in any given year. Um, we hear about the violence because the press jumps all over it. It's just wrong. Basically, mass shootings. The U.S., according to the Global Terrorism Database data, has been at 0.69% of all mass shootings. That is factually correct. This earlier study estimated that 31% of the world's mass public shootings happened in the United States. As I say, factually, according to the data that is on the Global Terrorism Database, it's less than 1%. It's 0.69% of all mass shootings since 1970 have happened in the U.S. And likewise, as I say, the homicide rates are relatively low. We are at the bottom end. And it's, it's complex because much of the data comes from when you're deal dealing with where we stand in global rankings, comes from countries that use obviously different ways of reporting crime. It's very similar to the fact that the gun control people are very big on pointing out that there are over 40,000 deaths by gun a year. What they fail to point out is that of those, around 10,000 a year are murders. And of those, uh, mur um, murders and homicides, and of those, homicides, about 10%, about 1,000 a year, roughly, are, um, if I can put it this way, they are police lawful killings. Tim, one last, you started the website for the for the London Center. Can you repeat that again? And what is the London Center? What, what does it do? We are, the London Center is a policy think tank and nonpartisan where we just advocate for, discuss, and develop policies and strategies that we hope will make meaningful change. We're not theoretical so much as we try and be practical and data-driven, which is why I got into all this data on guns. Instead of emoting, we try and go for good factual solutions to problems. Our website is at londoncenter.org. I think the audience deserves this, but London Center, it's, it's, the name did not come because you're based in London. No, that's true. Uh, it, the center was named after Dr. Herb London of New York City. Um, Herb was a leading thinker of his time and sadly died just over a year ago. We are trying to carry on with his legacy of thoughtful, data-driven, and analytical approaches to solving problems that America faces. Tim, that, and thanks to Herb London for his legacy. Thank to you guys for carrying out his legacy. And anybody out there, why don't you check out the London Center? Thank you, Mike. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's Top Rated Lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors and Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. 
Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. But if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Thanks again, Tim. You know, Tim is one of the more interesting guests that we've been on. And, you know, he spent a lot of time in, in Northern Ireland, which he talked about. In his mind, the IRA were a criminal element, and they were drug dealers and murderers and so forth. And, and yes, he's coming from British military intelligence, so he has a different perspective. But uh, I, I remember once he said that a lot of the, the front groups that were contributing money to Ireland back in the 80s or whatever, they, they were really not very legitimate. Do you remember any of those? I do. You took me to church at OLPH one day, and I just thought we were going to Mass. And all of a sudden, here comes the the plate, because ev- everybody in Northern Ireland needed blankets. I find it very hard to believe that with all those sheep running around all over Ireland, the one thing that we were raising so much money for were blankets? Are you kidding me? I think he would have agreed with me. I, I did, You notice I didn't put any money in the offering plate that day. I think you did, but that's another story. If I did, it was because you made me. I thought it was suspect. Okay, now we talked a little bit about, you know, rioting, you know, in our conversations. Next week on Ask the Lawyer, we're going to have, you know, one, one of the guests has been on our show before again, Sandy Mitchum. And he's going to be talking about the draft riots that happened in New York City in 1863. You know, the violence of that time, you you can't even compare it to today. Again, it lasted for days. A lot of people were killed. I forget how many, but uh, Professor Mitchum there, I think, will update us on that. And, And again, it was a violent time. You know, if we think about how bad things are today, well, back then, things were worse. I think it's just important to parse out good characters. They're good people and bad people. That's still not to say that if you watch Gangs of New York, you should take any of that literally because there were so many misconceptions. You know, history, it was just it was just horrible, the, the history of that I movie. I watched it. As he said, well, the history didn't matter. It was an opera. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but you at least try to stay close to history. Like when we were talking to, to Tom Clavin, you know, last week, <laughs> and he was talking about My Darling Clementine, oh. which is a great film. We both agreed it was a great film. It's just Victor has Mature. nothing to do with Victor history. Mature is a consumptive uh, <laughs> lunger, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> he looks like he just came off gladiatorial circuit. I think he played Samson just about that time. Did he? Yeah. I mean, he was oh, on a gosh. big, you know, Victor Mature is one of my favorite actors just in retrospect. But, you know, I mean, Samson and Delilah was the same time. And he wasn't a skinny fellow that with dying from tuberculosis. He looked like Samson. Right. And and don't forget Kiss of Death, which he had just made, oh, which we interviewed gosh. his co-star in that movie, Colin Gray, who unfortunately passed away. Listen, join us next week. Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Bye-bye, everybody. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.